0: Hello and welcome to the first Grow Series MCAT content review podcast with actual content in it. All right, so this is the first episode where I'm actually going to be talking about psychology. It'll be really fun. So I'm going to start off with how the, you know, AAMCC psychology in the MCAT, and then we're going to get into the actual content. So let's just jump right into it. So I'm going to be splitting these different concepts into different ways, all right? So with psychology, the AAMC has designed five foundational concepts. Those are concepts six through ten, all right? I personally found that the order of concepts are pretty unorganized, but um, generally, I think concepts six and seven have to do with the like physiology of psychology, while concepts eight, nine, and ten are like the nitty-gritty, you know, the theories, as concepts, sociology, etc. So I'm going to start with foundational concepts six, Not because it makes sense to go in order to learn properly, but I mean, I don't want to jump around, confuse you guys. I'll just go in order, 6 through 10. So we'll get right into it. If you feel like I'm talking too fast or too slow, you can always adjust the podcast speed. Um, But yeah, here goes the content part. So in foundational concept 6, the AAMC wants you to know a few broad topics. Those are sensing the environment, making sense of the environment, and responding to the world. So that kind of, you know, has to do with senses, all that stuff you know, we're dealing with your eyes, your ears, cognition, etc. So in this episode, I will go over sensory processing and the physiological aspects of vision. So sensory processing. All right. So we know uh, vision has four cues. I call those uh, form DMC. It's kind of like run DMC. (laughs) Haha. So funny. All right. So form DMC, it's form, depth, motion and constancy. Form DMC. All right. So first in that form DMC model is form. Pretty simple, you know, just state of an object, not that bad. So we really only need one eye to identify form and using only one eye that's called monocular cues. So you can see size and height, just, you know, judging on other objects around it. And you can also see the overlapping of an object on another and the shading and contour by using lights and shadows. So basically for form, just know form has to do with monocular vision. And it can be used with, you know, size, height, overlap, shading, all that stuff. Form is just like the state of an object. All right, so form, DMC, we checked off the form part, we'll get get to the D part, that is depth. So what allows us to perceive depth? That's having two eyes. So having two eyes is binocular cues. And you need to know two things about having two eyes. So first, having our eyes separated is amazing. Having that slightly different view of an object is what gives us depth, all right? And the second thing you gotta know about those binocular cues, having two eyes, is convergence. So let's stare at your nose for like 10 seconds. All right, that wasn't 10 seconds, but I know half you guys aren't doing it, so you know, who cares? Well, if you did do it, did you notice your eyes kinda get a little strained? Well, that's cause when we look at things that are close to us, our eye muscles contract. So your nose is super close to your eyes your eye muscles are really contracting, gets super strained. Now, if we look at things far away from us, our eyes get relaxed. So conversions, you know, looking close and away that has to do with depth. So basically for depth, just know depth means binocular vision, which means two eyes. And we can see binocular vision with uh, retinal disparity, which is when our retinas, our eyes are on, you know, different places and convergence. So form is done. Depth is done. So we have the MC part of form DMC left, all right, and M is motion, all right, we go back to the monocular view of things, you can see motion with one eye, right, so we come on to relative motion, that basically means things that are further away look way slower, things that are closer look faster, not much to it, pretty basic, last one is constancy, constancy means that if images change, it doesn't mean our perception of it changes, so if you, let's say, if you sat 15 feet away from me, right, and then you came and sat a foot away from me. I wouldn't think that you're bigger a foot away from me. I would think that the same size object just moved a little closer. So, basically just know that form, motion, and constancy, you can all see that with just one eye, but depth is where you really need two eyes. All right, so um we're done with all that. We're going to go to the other senses in general. So, with senses, we know we have 5 and um so you know, the normal senses you kind of talk about in elementary school, the sight, smell, sound, taste, and touch. Well, four of those five we'll use, but we're going to cut taste for now and we're going to add proprioception. So we have uh, smell, sound, touch, sight, and proprioception. All right. And so um, proprioception is basically just knowing the position of your body in space. So proprioception, knowing the position of your body. All right. So the main thing you got to understand is that all these senses adapt. So, for example, with sound, you know, if you're hearing something, you're adapting to the sounds, your inner ear muscles actually contract and relax. They contract and relax just to, you know, dampen the vibrations and protect the eardrum. So with sound, you kind of down regulate sounds based on contracting and relaxing your inner ear muscles. All right, with touch, you've probably seen this all the time, we get desensitized to temperature. So for example, in the shower, you put the heat up a little bit and then five minutes later, it doesn't feel as hot. That's because you get desensitized to that temperature. All right, with smell, we get used to different smells too. For example, if I worked at a bakery, I wouldn't even notice the great smell after a while. It'd just be the same old. All righty. And then the special one, remember proprioception, the one we just added, that is knowing the position of your body in space, So you get used to an altered view over time. So let's say, for example, you're hanging upside down and then, uh, you know, you're looking around for a while. Your eyes will get used to that upside down view. Also, I suggest don't hang out upside down for that long that you get used to it. Um, Be normal. All right. All right. So up until now, we've seen down regulation. Sight is the only one that has both up and down regulation. All right. With sight, there's down regulation when you're adapting to light, like your pupils restrict. But there's um, up regulation when you're adapting to dark and your pupils, surprise, dilate. So, what sense is the only one that can both up and down regulate? Five seconds, four, three, two, one. Sight. Yeah, good job. All right, so we talked about touch a little bit, but the adaptation of touch is a great concept. So, um, before I get into Weber's Law, I'll talk about the just noticeable difference. All right, that's the threshold where you notice change. So, Weber's Law, they find out about the K constants in regards to this just noticeable difference by the way from now on i'm going to call the just noticeable difference jnd so the formula for weber's law is the jnd divided by the initial weight or intensity equals k the constant so weber's law it's as you can see it's just a ratio it sees how much change compared to the original weight is necessary to notice a change so the jnd is the threshold where you notice change weber's law is the jnd divided by the initial All right, so for example, if I lifted a rock that was 10 pounds, and then let's say I lifted another rock, it was 11 pounds, I didn't really notice a difference, but I lifted another rock, it was 12 pounds, and I definitely did notice a difference. Then let's first find the J&D, then we'll find the Weber's Law constant. So 12 pounds, notice the difference, all right? That's a change of two pounds before we notice something. So the J&D, simple as that, it's just two pounds. Now we know the initial was 10 pounds, So to get Weber's law, we do the J and D divided by the initial. So the K constant is 2 divided by 10, which is 0.2. And just know the K constant has no units because you're dividing pounds by pounds. So yeah, don't let them trick you with that either. All right. So another important thing to know about Weber's law, we don't only use it for weight. We don't only use it for anything we touch. You can use it also for sound. Let's say, I, I mean, I can compare technically a whisper to a scream in this scenario. Weber's law would apply just the same. All right. And another another little tidbit to note, uh, since Weber's law is just ratio, it's going to be a linear relationship. So if there's a question about Weber's law, they show different graphs. It's a linear relationship. Shouldn't be too bad. Now, I'm going to jump into something similar, but also different. And it confuses a lot of people. And that's the absolute threshold of sensation. All right. So just off the bat, know the absolute threshold of sensation. It's different from the JND. All right. JND is one concept. Absolute threshold of sensation is another concept. So by definition, let's talk about what the absolute threshold of sensation is. That's the smallest amount of stimulus needed to notice a stimulus 50% of the time. So why are we mentioning 50% of the time? Well, there's differences amongst different individuals. You know, some people are more sensitive than others. And then there's differences in you. You know, maybe one day you notice something, the next day you don't. So by saying the smallest amount of stimulus to notice the stimulus 50% of the time, we cover our bases and we can talk about reliably perceiving something. And as I mentioned before, absolute threshold of sensation differs amongst individuals. What does that mean? Well, it's subject to changes, you know, maybe your expectations, your experiences, your motivation, how alert you are, all that stuff that can all affect it. So even though it's called the absolute threshold of sensation, don't think of it as some super hard and fast rule Honestly, Weber's Law and j is more of that like hard and fast rule. Absolute threshold of sensation can change. And that's basically a part of the definition. So moving on from all that on touch, on tactile sensation, on Weber's Law, let's talk about how you think, all right? So there's two different types of processing you should know of. That's bottom up and top down. So bottom up is when you get sensory information as it's coming in, you build from the small pieces and you build big pieces. So right now, let's say you're listening to this podcast, you're building these words, you're building an idea, you take each word, you construct it into a full idea that you'll use to get a 528 on the MCAT, right? All right. So bottom up, basically build from the bottom up, you get those small pieces and you build bigger ones. Top down is when you have preset ideas in your mind and you use those to interpret a situation. So probably the best example of top down processing is when we read text. So we kind of just go over typos in text, and that's because we take that contextual information that we've used, all the information that we already have, and we make an idea of what the sentence we think will be. So we kind of just run over typos and ignore it all. So top down, you build from preset ideas. Bottom up, you get the information as it's coming. You build an idea as you go. All right. So the last of the conceptual psychological stuff I'm going to be talking about is just adult principles. And uh, there's five laws to really care about. That's closure, continuity, proximity, Pragnans and similarity. So, I'll go over the five Gestalt principles again. Those are closure, continuity, proximity, pragnans, and similarity. Five laws. All right, so similarity, that's when you group similar things together. So, let's say I have a column of squares, a column of circles, another column of squares, another column of circles. Um, I'll analyze a pattern based on columns. I won't look at the rows and be like, oh, there has to be a pattern here. No, I know there's a pattern in the columns. And um, I'll interpret it as such because all the columns are similar. All right, now we'll go on to Pragnanz. That's when you reduce something to the most simplistic shape. So Pragnanz is actually a German word. That's why it sounds so weird. It's P-R-A-G-N-A-N-Z. It means concise and meaningful. So the most common example is the one of the Olympic rings. You see them as five circles, right? Not some intensely complicated shape filled with semicircles, all that stuff. No, you just think of it as five different circles. That's Pragnance. You're reducing it to the most simplistic shape. So proximity is pretty simple, pretty obvious. Things that are you know, close to each other are grouped together. All right, and then we'll go on to continuity. Basically, it says you can make a continuous line whenever you can. So let's say I see 100 dots in a row, but there's some dots on top of it and there's some dots below it. But in general, we just see 100 dots in a row. You naturally organize those 100 dots into a continuous line. So you make a continuous line and you distinguish it from those other dots. All right, and the last law is closure, and that says that basically um, when you see objects that are grouped together, you kind of see them as a whole. So let's say, you know, you, you want closure. So let's say I have a circle and I made it with disconnected lines, but um, the spaces in between the lines are really small. So you still think of it as a circle, right? You still get the concept. So you still think, okay, even though it has disconnected lines, I know what he's going for. It's a circle. All right, so next we're going to jump from all these sensory things to the vestibular system. The vestibular system is uh, mostly in the inner ear and it does two things, balance and spatial orientation. So just kind of getting your balance and your, your sense of where you are. And to be honest, there's some things I really can't put into audio form and uh, the actual physical shape of the vestibular system is one of them. That's something I think it, you would have a much better understanding if you looked at it, you know, in a book or whatever online. Despite that, I'm still going to describe it the best I can, obviously, and I still will look at the order and uh, talk about the function. So we'll jump right into it. Um, First, uh, I'll talk about the semicircular canals in the vestibular system. Um, You have to know a few things here. There's uh, three canals, the posterior, the anterior, and the lateral. So that's back, front, and middle. So all three canals are orthogonal to each other. That means they're at right angles to each other. So one is on the x-axis, one is on the y-axis, and the last one is on the z-axis, And I could definitely see a discrete question being made out of the angle of the semicircular canals. Uh, Just know that they're orthogonal, all right? All right, so the semicircular canals, they're used for direction of shift and strength of rotation, and it does so with this liquid called endolymph. Endolymph is a super potassium-rich fluid. It's, you know, it's super rich in potassium just so it can start those action potentials. So endolymph is used in those semicircular canals. Um, It's used for, number one, direction, and number two, the strength of rotation, so how much you're rotating. But it's also present in the cochlear duct for hearing. That's not really related to balance and the vestibular system. You'll get into that maybe in an episode or two from now. Just know endolymph is the fluid in semicircular canals. And you've definitely experienced the effects of endolymph. So let's say, you know, you're spinning around in a circle and then you just stop, right? You still get really dizzy. You feel like you're still spinning. That's because even though you stop spinning, your endolymph, it's a liquid. It's still spinning. So you get a little dizzy And, you know, you indicate to your brain you're spinning, even though you're not. All right. So next up in the vestibular system are the otolithic organs. These are for linear acceleration and head positioning. So if you remember uh, with the semicircular canals, I said that is um, the strength of rotation and the direction of shift. Otolithic organs have to do with linear acceleration. So straight forward or back and head positioning. So semicircular canals, just think of the word. Circular, you know, that has to do with rotation, shifting directions. Autolithic organs are just straight up, up and down. All right, so the most important thing you need to know about autolithic organs are or how they work, um, specifically in regards to the calcium crystals they have. So they have calcium crystals that um, when they get pulled, they tug onto a hair cell and it causes an action potential. And the hair cell gets pulled if you do something like from lying down to standing. So next up on the physiology aspect of this episode is sight. And there's a ton of vocab words you need to know here. Um, I'll definitely define them. But just as with a vestibular system, open a book, look at it a few times, it'll give you that great understanding if you pair it with the podcast. So the first layer that light hits, conjunctiva, all right? That's a super thin layer of epithelial cells. Um, the conjunctiva, basically the whole point of it is it moisturizes your cornea and it helps protect it from friction. So your eyes are just open to the world. You need the conjunctiva as kind of like an extra layer to help you survive, I guess. All right, next up is the cornea. You've probably heard of this. The cornea is curved and it's clear. Basically what it does is it bends the light and it focuses the image on the pupil. All right, so right behind the cornea is the anterior chamber. Anterior meaning the front chamber. It's filled with aqueous humor. Just know humor means liquid if you ever see it in a medical you know textbook or anything like that. You'll probably see it around, I might say it a bit. Humor is liquid. So the anterior chamber, it's right behind the cornea. It's filled with that aqueous humor. And the aqueous humor, basically what it does is it provides pressure, so it keeps the shape of the eyeball. And then right behind the anterior chamber is the pupil. I mentioned the cornea focuses the image and bends the light to the pupil. So we get to that part, the pupil. So the pupil can get bigger or smaller. It depends on the degree of iris muscular contraction or relaxation. So in the middle of the pupil is the iris, and the iris is uh, what your eye color is based on. So if the iris relaxes, your pupils dilate. If the iris constricts, your pupils constrict. So if you've ever gotten your pupils dilated at the doctor, you know, that's, you know what I'm talking about. The pupil basically houses the iris. The iris is able to change the amount of light that enters the eye by changing that size of the pupil. So right now, so far, we had the conjunctiva, the cornea, the anterior chamber, and the pupil. So we're going to jump into the next one, which is the lens. The lens is behind the pupil it bends the light so it goes to the back of the eyeball. So just like the cornea bent the light to get to the pupil, the lens is behind the pupil and bends the light to get to the back of the eyeball. So the lens basically just shuffles it a little further. So behind the lens is a large space. That space is called the vitreous chamber. It's filled with vitreous humor, which, you know, unlike the aqueous humor, the vitreous humor is more of a jelly-like substance. Aqueous humor is more of that liquid. And so the vitreous humor, it kind of does what the aqueous humor does. So it provides pressure to the eyeball, but it also does another thing, and that's providing nutrients as well. So the next thing is pretty important, and that is the retina. The retina lines the entire back of the eyeball. It's tinted red. So when flash from a camera bounces off the retina and directs back to the camera, you get those red eyes in some pictures. So the retina is where you'll have a lot of questions because it pertains to rods and cones. Um, So off the jump, just know the basics. Rods are for black and white, cones are for color. So think of cones, you know, the first two letters is CO, just like colors, first two letters are CO. So cones, color, rods, black and white. So inside the retina, which like I said, it lines the entire back of the eyeball, is the macula. And that place is unique because it's super rich in cones, which means color, but it only has some rods. Inside the macula is an even cooler place, and that's the fovea. And the fovea is cool because it has all cones and zero rods. So the retina has a macula, a place with a ton of cones and some rods, and the macula has a fovea, a place with all cones and zero rods. So, what do the rods and cones do? So, I mentioned earlier, rods are for black and white, cones are for color, and what they do is they display this information to your brain by taking that physical waveform we see in light, and they transform that physical waveform to an electrochemical impulse, and that rides up your optic nerve, goes all the way up to your brain, and you interpret that that electrochemical impulse as light. Um, and another thing to know about them is a the quantity. So, there's 120 million rods, and there's only six million cones. Um, and most of the cones are in that fovea. Remember that unique place in the macula, in the retina? So that means what? There's 20 times more rods than cones. So with a high quantity, it's obvious rods are more sensitive, right? They're more sensitive to light than cones. They tell us if light is present or not, but cones, they have an advantage over rods and that's that they have a fast recovery time. So rods are pretty slow and and you've definitely seen that in your own everyday life let's say you turn your bedroom light off and you walk to your bed you're blind for about a minute you know a minute or two while your eyes are adjusting to the dark that's just your rods adjusting to that lack of light and it takes a minute you know you don't immediately get night vision so rods are good because they're sensitive to light they know if there's either a light present or not and cones are good because they have that fast recovery time they can just bam say that there's a color or there's not And then uh, lastly, I'll conclude with uh, just one vocab word, and that is the blind spot. So remember, I talked about how the retina lines the entire back of the eyeball. Well, I lied. There's a little bit of the back of the eyeball. It doesn't line, and that's the blind spot. That's because that's where all the nerve fibers come in, and that's where they form the optic nerve, and uh, it's basically a tunnel from your eyeball to your brain. So first episode is going to be pretty quick. I just wanted to get a little taste of Grow Series, this MCAT content review podcast. So we reviewed over some stuff, you know, sensory processing, the vestibular system and vision. But like I said before, it's a rough overview. So use this kind of as a supplemental tool, really hammered all home with additional content review. And just like that, we are done. So thank you guys for listening to this first episode and uh, see you on the next one.